Good morning, friends, and welcome. Uh, it is wonderful uh, to be together at church together, to praise God, to open up God's Word together. And we're going to continue to do that today in Ephesians. So let me pray for us. Uh, dear Lord, uh, we do thank you for the grace and the mercy uh, that you show us, uh, that you love us, that you bring us into your family. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, that you're not distant, but you do speak. And I pray that I will reflect your word faithfully this morning as we look at this passage in Ephesians. Amen. When we're young, we spend a lot of time trying to work out our, our identity. You know, who am I? Who do I want to be? You know, because we all want to be someone. And as we grow older, uh, we start to, you know, settle into patterns of life and work and relationships and things like that. But we're still trying to work out all the way through life, you know, who do I want to be? What's my meaning? What's my purpose? Where am I going? And as we perhaps get older still, what's the legacy that I hope to leave? As a society, we look for our identity in all sorts of things, don't we? So it might be in our possessions. And we feel the more we have, then the happier we will be. It might be in the great Australian dream of owning your own home or owning a better home. It might be in your travels. And sometimes when you watch you know, some of those travel shows... They almost put religious language on top of it. It's, not, it's no longer a holiday in Bali. It's a religious experience. You know, you watch MasterChef. Every item on that plate is a religious experience. Uh, we all find our identity in lots of different things. In the words of Paul in the book of Romans, he says the risk is that we start to worship the created things rather than the creator. And so we start to look at these things and hope that these are going to be the answers to the meaning in life. And often, even when we're disappointed, we don't give up on them. Perhaps we just need a little bit more to make it work. So it doesn't matter how many possessions you've got, if you watch the ads, they'll tell you, you'll be happier with just a little bit more. And I think for Christians, the temptation isn't so much to choose the world or Jesus, but to try to choose both. And so it's a little bit like water skiing. So I don't know if you've ever done water skiing, but when you start out, you start out on two skis. And if both skis are going in the same direction, then it's happy days. Okay, but in water skiing, particularly when you're starting, you, you discover that one ski wants to go in one direction and the other ski wants to go in the other direction and all of a sudden it gets very, very awkward. And I think sometimes we can try to do that as Christians. We try to keep one foot in the world, one foot following Jesus, and we discover very, very quickly that it's not going to work. So when Paul is writing uh, to the Ephesian church, he's writing to say, remember who you are. And so last week he started by saying, remember that God is in control and praise God for that. And then this week we'll continue. He's reminding them that their identity is in Christ. They have a new life because of what Jesus has done. And so today I want to look at the passage under three very simple titles, so it shouldn't be too hard to follow. 
I was, I am, and I will. So that's where we're going this morning. If you've got your Bible open, that would be fantastic. You can follow with me. Uh, Let's have a look. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. This is what it says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So remember, he's talking to Christians and he's saying, this is who you were, but this is not who you are now. Your sins and your transgressions had killed you. There's not a lot of coming back from killed, is there? It's, it's pretty graphic language. You are dead. There is no coming back from dead. Not, not you know, unconscious, semi-conscious, coma, dead. No coming back, no help. And that's what sin does. You know, God created us to be in relationship with him. He created us to love him, to be obedient to him, to love his world, to love each other. And we look at the whole thing and we go, God, thank you, love the world. It's pretty impressive. Uh, But really, it's my life and I will do what I want to do. And the irony is we think our act of rebellion is actually an expression of our freedom. I'm free to do what I want. But the reality is that our whole nature conspires against us. This passage is saying that our sin isn't something we just choose to do. Actually, we can't help doing it. It's part of who we are. And he uses this expression, it's an unusual expression, where he says, our natural inclination was to follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And it's an expression that Paul only uses in this one passage. And he uses it to describe the sphere of Satan's influence. So in this time, in this broken season of existence, God allows Satan to influence us. And as human beings, we don't resist it, we actually embrace it. And perhaps even worse still, and we hate to admit it, but we actually care what other people think and so not only do we have a natural inclination to sin but actually the whole world around us is encouraging us to sin we're kind of like gambling addicts living in las vegas we just cannot ever escape it and it's a world that wants to say you can have a good self-esteem it's all about you you don't need god it's all about believing yourself follow your dreams, and you can be whoever you want to be. And at the same time, it's a world that almost says exactly the opposite and then accuses us. You're worthless, you're hopeless. You have nothing good to offer. It's a world that says, follow the idols of this world and you will be happy. It promises everything, but then can't deliver. And as much as we hate to admit it, We do feel the pressure to conform. And I think for for many of us who have been Christians for a while, uh, we we lose the enormity of the problem that we once faced. You know, we know about sin, we talk about sin, but we just don't feel the weightiness of sin. 
And I think the difficulty with that is that we can become complacent about our present sin. I think we do that because we, we make two mistakes. I think firstly we think about sin just in terms of sort of moral misdemeanours. You know, lying, cheating, you know, gossiping, uh, you know, getting drunk. You know, they're, they're sort of moral misdemeanours. They're bad, but they're not, you know, they're not like really bad. Uh, and we end up reducing them down to something kind of trivial. But the Bible tells us that sin is bigger than just moral misdemeanour. At the absolute heart of it, it's about our relationship with God being broken. It's about allegiance. Our allegiance is to ourself and our freedom, and it's against God. Our natural says that we are enemies, enemies of our God. I think to, to make that even more difficult, uh, we misunderstand the idea of justice. So we're kind of hoping that one day we'll stand before God and we'll be able to say, I'm a good person, you should let me in. And our view in, the, in our world is it's kind of like weighing up the scales. You know, so we kind of put all our good on one side and all the bad on the other and we're hoping that the good weighs out the bad, God will clearly see that, and it'll all be well in the end. But that's not justice. The scales of justice were never about weighing good and bad. They're about weighing the evidence. And the evidence is that we are all, by nature, objects of wrath. I think we're hoping that we will stand before God at the end of the day, and he will be a loving God, and he will see that we're basically good people. You know, there are some people who definitely deserve to go to hell. You know, we look at Hitler and we go, yep, there's no debate on that. You know, unanimous. Hitler should go to hell. Uh, the guy who invented bagpipes. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sorry if it was a cousin. Uh, you know, but whoever it is, it ain't us. Okay, it's always someone out there. Justice should happen out there, but it should never be directed towards us. Uh, This is how one lady described our view, the Christian view of sin uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald. It was around Easter. Imagine how confused and guilty children would feel when they were indoctrinated with the bizarre idea that you were born with a stain of original sin and were in fact so inherently bad that a man had to bleed to death to make it all okay. Now, personally, I think it's more confusing to our kids to tell them they're good and the world's good when clearly it's not. But actually, this woman's got it right. She she sees this as an objection and she's outraged. But she's actually understood the problem, that sin is so serious And God is so just that he allows his own son to pay the price for us. We are all, by nature, objects of wrath. But if you are a Christian, then that is your past. I was an object of wrath. I am now alive in Christ. Uh, In 1950, uh, there was a surf club captain by the name of Jim Perryman at Cronulla. Uh, If anyone has grown up in the Cronulla area, you'll know that there's a pavilion there called the Jim Perryman Memorial Pavilion. Uh, In in that year, 
uh, there was one of those days, and you'd know them from living down here, uh, where it was just one of those wicked storm days. You know, the wind's up, massive surf. Uh, it's just one of those days you know the beach is closed and there's no doubt about it. You know, the flags are crossed and all of the, uh, the, the clubbies have sort of headed up into the clubhouse to hang out for the day. No one would possibly go for a swim in this. Except someone did. Uh, a young girl went for a swim, got swept out, uh, the back, and before she knows it, she's in crisis. Okay, now this is 1950, so this is before all the, the tech that we have today. And so what they do, uh, and, and you, you've seen it in the ads, you know, they put on the belt, and they have the, the, ro- the reel, and so the one person swims out, that was Jim Perryman, swims out to the, the person in distress, grabs on, and the rest of the crew pull him back in. So his job in that time is just to hold on to this person for dear life, literally. Uh, what they didn't realise at the time was that there was actually a bank of seaweed between the shore and, and the patient. And so in the end it was dragging down the line and the surf was so big that no one could see it. And so by the time they dragged them to shore, both of them were unconscious. And so you know they performed CPR and the whole rest of it. Uh, but only one person lived that day. Uh, and that one person was not Jim Perryman. Now, if you use that as a little bit of an illustration of, of what Christ has done for us, you, you know, it, it's all about a girl who was really given every warning in the world about the consequences of her action. And in the same situation, we see this incredible picture of sacrifice that someone would choose to risk their life and actually give their life for that person. And that's a morsel of what Christ has done for us. It's a, it's a woefully inadequate illustration to describe that the perfect God would allow himself to die on a cross to pay the price for all of humanity. It is completely undeserved. And that's grace. Grace is completely undeserved. Not only we weren't even likeable, you know, it wasn't even enough that you're a good person and therefore, you know, will rescue you. We're completely unlovable. We are completely, by nature, objects of wrath. And yet, God loves us. I was dead and an object of wrath. I'm alive in Christ. And finally, I will. I will live for him. Verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If we say we're Christians and we say that we love Jesus as our saviour who died and paid the price for our sin, then we must also love Jesus as our Lord and King. You can't have one without the other. Uh, if If we are Christians, then we've redefined our whole purpose and meaning in life. We've moved away from it being all about me and it's now all about Jesus. And how do I now live for Jesus? There is absolutely nothing I can do to save myself. But now that I'm a Christian, I am called to do good things for God. And we can't take one without the other. Uh, which can be tough sometimes. You know, when, when we hear, love your neighbour, we quite like that. That sounds pretty positive. We go, that's a pretty easy one to follow. Uh, when we say, forgive your neighbour... That's a little harder. Uh, when we say, love your enemies, we think, Jesus, really? 
You haven't met my enemies. Uh, but if we say that we are followers of Christ, then we say we're all in. We're saying, Jesus, you are my saviour, you are my Lord, and I am now here following you. I think for some of us, we've been Christians for such a long time that we lose that sense of urgency, don't we? We lose that sense of joy. It's no longer a joy to follow Jesus because he is a good God. It's now an obligation. And when that mind shift happens, then faith becomes more of an obligation rather than something we just love living. When you love doing something, it's not a burden to do it, is it? When you love someone, it's not a burden to serve them because you love it. Uh, But when we lose that, then it does become a burden. I think what happens is we move Jesus from the center and he simply becomes part of a well-balanced life, you know, along with healthy eating and good exercise. Uh, But that's not what we're called to be. There's no joy in that. That's trying to put one foot in the world, you know, one foot with Jesus. Uh, That's just awkward. I think for some of us, those good works are going to be reactive. Well, they will be for all of us. And so it might be opportunities to uh, when your neighbour you know, knocks on the door and says they need some help. Or it might be welcoming a new person when they come to church. Or it might be seeing someone in need in your workplace and getting beside them. Some of it's going to be proactive. It's actually going out and looking for opportunities. Going out into our community and saying, who don't I know that I could help? Or who's the person in my workplace where I could talk to them about Jesus? Who can I serve here at church? Just a phone call perhaps or a meal perhaps. But whether it's proactive or reactive, we all have opportunities to serve Jesus with our life. Uh, and we, you know, can really encourage us to think through what are the opportunities around you? Without even looking too far, what are the opportunities? In your family, your neighbours, your friends, your family here at church. When we get our foundation right, then everything else starts to make sense, doesn't it? So if we look for our identity in the world, uh, then sure enough we start to discover very quickly that God created us for bigger things. But when we get that foundation right, when Jesus is the foundation on which everything else is built then all those good things become better. So my marriage is better when I put Jesus first because Jesus shows me how to love my wife. I will be a better worker in the workplace when I put Jesus first because he will show me how to be a good worker. So where do you find your identity? Perhaps uh, to, to try to think through that idea for yourself. Where do you spend your time? Or where do you spend your money? Or what do you love talking about with other people? What's your go-to conversation? Just in your own mind, where do you find your identity? Perhaps it's, you know, what do you spend all your time looking at on the internet? What are you shopping for this month, this week? Just in your own mind, identify it in your head. If you're a Christian, I hope the answer is Christ. It should be Christ. But if it's not, then can I encourage you to think, what's holding you back? What are you holding on to that you're struggling to let go of? Or perhaps what's holding on to you that you're struggling to release yourself from? 
It might be your desire for possessions. It might be your desire for respect. It might be a sin that you hate, but you just can't let go of. Whatever it is, this passage says, remember who you are in Christ. You were dead, but you are now alive. You've got a new life. You've got a new identity. And don't say that to be a burden, but to be a joy to release ourselves from that old life because we are new people and that's a brilliant thing. And if you're not a Christian here today, uh, perhaps you've been, you know, you understand the Christian thing but you just haven't committed or perhaps you're just thinking about it for the first time, then I hope we've painted a picture of what a Christian is, uh, that we've been freed from sin and freed into a new life. But whoever you are, perhaps use this week as an opportunity to start to rethink some of those obstacles. You know, talk about it with someone you trust. You know, you're welcome to talk about it with me. We've all got our struggles. I don't stand up here saying I'm perfect at all, believe me. But as one brother to brothers and sisters, how do we encourage each other to desire Christ, to desire to be more godly, knowing that it is better? Uh, let me finish uh, with a prayer from Paul. Uh, it's from chapter 1, uh, verse 18, which we didn't do today. But I think it's a very poignant way to, to finish. Let me pray with these words. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Amen.